Hello, everyone, and welcome to Alien Talk Podcast, where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs, and where we push the boundaries of our knowledge of the universe. Here, unconventional thinking is just as acceptable as conventional thinking. We are Joe Landry and Laurie Olford, your co-hosts for the show, and today we're going to study the Great Flood, the ancient global deluge, Noah's Ark. Uh, that story, of course, is one which we have all heard about, and we've heard about it from all of our various cultures. Uh, hi there, Laurie. Am, am I right in saying this? Yes, I believe you are right, Joe. Uh, how are you going? How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? Uh, great. So, yeah, the flood is an especially interesting topic because it is such a huge theme in Judeo-Christianity, and it has completely pervaded all of Western thinking, thinking to the point where it is practically a symbol of faith in and of itself. Um, so, like you said, all cultures around cultures around the world share a myth uh, about a flood in ways that make them all but the same. Um, maybe slight variations in terms of names and places that are used. But we titled this episode, The Flood, An Extraterrestrial Agenda, because that's exactly what it was. A global cataclysmic event, which was coordinated by an alien race, none other than the Anunnaki from Nibiru. Yeah, now they didn't actually cause the flood per se. Uh, it happened... Uh, just as a, re a natural result of an increase in tidal friction, which came about as the planet Nibiru passed ex uh, extremely close to the Earth, probably about 13,000 years ago. Uh, that gravitational pull between the two would have immensely strengthened and then brought about a higher extent of tidal friction. So remember, uh, planets are more fluid than we may realize, especially the Earth, uh, because not only is it covered by 70% water, but its crust is uh, movable from all the fault zones and convergence zones that zigzag the crust, as well as from that molten asthenosphere and, and mantle that are beneath the crust. So when the gravity of the Earth pulls upon an, another um, celestial body like the moon and in turn is being pulled upon, there is a stretching uh, that happens as the gravity of the two celestial bodies act uh, upon one another. Now, of course, the same thing is going on with the gravitational pull of the sun. Yeah, that's a good, uh, a good explanation. And, you know, Babylonian mythology is quite descriptive about the planets actually being the gods. Um, it talks about how the planets, the divine brothers, came together against Tiamat. It says that they disturbed Tiamat as they surged back and forth. Um, they were troubling the billy of Tiamat. This seems to be describing what the planet was experiencing from the gravitational pulling of the other planets during the formation of the solar system. But it also mentions how the planet that begot Ea, which was uh, planet Neptune. Now, Ea is the same as Inki, who is the father of, you guessed it, Marduk, this planet, um, also known as Nibiru. Egyptian mythology is also similar. Well, similar with Ptah, which is Inki, being the father of Ra, which is Marduk. So uh, these planets are personified, um, right? Yeah, well, yeah, it sounds like they are. Mm -hmm. So so Inki is pulling Marduk uh, to set its collision course with Tiamat. This gravitational pull on a young, fiery planet caused a bulge in the side of Marduk to make it look like that he had a second head or two heads. Yeah, you know, the... <laughs> Those ancients, they had a way of taking these cosmic events and, and making them into really interesting stories. Um, mm -hmm. So just to illustrate the dynamics of this, uh, the Earth can be thought of as like a ball of putty. A ball just out and then sets back in. 
as the force of the moon pulls on it during the revolution of its orbit. This stretching is a movement, and like all movement, uh, there's friction that comes from it, uh, friction within the oceans and the land masses, and it puts a certain amount of stress on the lithosphere. And with the shifting around due to plate tectonics, we get volcanoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, uh, fluctuations of sea level, and oscillations in ocean currents. And that's just from the influence of the moon, which is smaller than the Earth. So imagine what it would be like if a planet larger than the Earth moved in a close proximity with it, uh, what the effect of the gravitational pull would have on the Earth with the expanding and contracting uh, the way it happens. Uh, it would surely wreak havoc on the crust and on the oceans. And something like gigantic pieces of ice breaking away from the landmass of Antarctica could very well be possible. A change like this in our Earth's environment with something like a large planet passing closely by, and that would certainly result in things down here moving around in unusual ways. Could large-scale coastal and inland flooding happen from it? I would say yes. Any colossal and abrupt change upon the ocean could bring that about. I mean, just look at that, uh, the, the, the devastation from what's called the Boxing Day Tsunami near Indonesia in December of 2004. It came suddenly and intensely from an undersea earthquake, and that ended up flooding, um, severely flooding pretty much all of the shoreline along the Indian Ocean and leaving a quarter of a million people dead and about 1.7 million people displaced. And this is according to a 2014 article in Earth magazine. So what if something even more powerful occurred? What if it was something, say, uh, 50 times or a hundred times greater than that earthquake. Right. Um, yeah, I like that. Uh, I, I never thought about the, uh, you know, the, the uh, Boxing Day tsunami. Um, yeah, that's a good explanation. So, yeah, the Anunnaki didn't intentionally cause it. Um, they didn't make the flood, of course, but they knew ahead of time what was going to happen with the close passage of the two planets. So they knew that the ice shelf, um, of Antarctica wasn't stable enough to withstand a tidal force from this powerful gravitational pull uh, that was to be exerted upon the Earth. Now, once they were made aware of the chaos to occur down on Earth, their plan for annihilation uh, was started in or w was started in motion. Um, the archangels had already thrown the fallen ones under the bus, so to speak, as it says in Enoch nine eight, and they have gone to the daughters of men upon the earth and have slept with the women and have defiled themselves and revealed to them all kinds of sins. Now, these are the archangels coming to the God of the Bible, uh, according to the book of Enoch. Right. So their agenda was to utilize their geological discovery to bring about this quote unquote day of judgment by taking advantage of a pending catastrophe of nature. Uh, so you have to realize that they would have certainly had the capability to make very concise measurements, observations, and calculations about things that are going on with the Earth's atmosphere, oceans, and the seismic and volcanic activity. Um, if we are capable of doing this today with our satellites and our space probes, then surely they would have been able to do so back then, even more precisely uh, with our spaceships equipped with whatever uh, sophisticated instruments they uh, may have possessed. Exactly. And, and we're going to talk about the Day of Judgment and all that in a, in a later episode. 
Um, but the Bible mentions the, the flood as being sent by God slash Yahweh slash Jehovah, whichever way you want to refer to him, and that he wanted to be completely eradicated from the face of the earth. Now, why? Well, the simple answer from the Bible is because God was sick of humans being so evil. He regretted creating them. So it, it actually says it plainly in Genesis 6, 5, and 7. And the, the scripture says, uh, the Lord saw that the human beings on the earth were very wicked and that everything they they thought about was evil. So he was sorry he had he had made them and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will destroy all human beings that I made on the earth. Now, on, on the other hand, the ancient alien theory and storyline in the Sumerian and Babylonian myth provide a more dynamic background and explain that there was a lot more drama to it than this. Yeah, right. Uh, most of us know about the Great Flood from our religious upbringings. We learned about the story of Noah's Ark uh, from the book of Genesis in chapters 5 through 9, and we're all very familiar with it. And the biblical account has water covering the entire planet with dry land not being exposed for over a year, even exceeding the tallest mountains by 20 feet in depth. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights, and after the fountains of the abyss and the floodgates of the firmament were opened to cause the water to prevail for 150 days, that's 150 days, uh, almost six months. Now, we'll get more into the abyss and the firmament in a little bit, but this gives the reader the impression that water was actually covering Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, by 20 feet, and that seems highly, highly unlikely. The Quran has a nearly identical narrative, one in which Noah, uh, Noah, has a fourth son named Yom, uh, who doesn't believe that a flood will happen and refuses to get into the ark. Of course, he ends up drowning. In cool. Greek and Roman mythology, Zeus or Jupiter uh, flood the earth, and a Noah-like character named Deucalion escapes in a wooden chest. The Egyptian tradition has Ra bringing about a devastating swell in the Nile River that inundates the valley. Now, from Babylonian mythology, we have the Atrahasis, and we also have the Epic of Gilgamesh, where the flood is mentioned. It is told in a similar fashion with another Noah-like character named Atnapashtim, who tells of how he escapes the fate of the world after being instructed by the gods to build a boat and to gather representatives of all living creatures. And then afterwards, he and his wife live on to procreate. And according to what Gilgamesh relates from this conversation, Napishtim joins the gods to live among them as an immortal. We'll be back after a quick break. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Y'all know by now that it seems very probable that, probable that this great flood would have happened in, at the end of the Pleistocene Ice Age, about 11,000 to 13,000 years ago. 
the Neolithic Revolution would have begun just after that, with the Earth tilting 23.5 degrees on its axis, and a new era would be ushered in with the different climates, starker land features, higher ocean levels, etc., all because Nibiru passed closely by us. Right, right. Now, we also um, must consider that there are theological uh, theological constructs found within the hermeneutics of this story. Uh, so water is used to symbolize the cleansing of sin and a return to the original state of perfection, which is also believed to be manifested in the ritual of baptism. Water cleans, water purifies. Uh, there is also the sign of um, divine wrath found from the teachings of the flood, as well as divine mercy, uh, as well as redemption. So there is a parallel between the earth being rid of wickedness and evil ways through the submersion in water. The old world is gone and the new one comes forth from it. Just as we find in the Gospels that water submersion removes the old sinful self, which is done away with, and a new self comes out uh, cleansed. And this is one of the, the very first rituals that is found in Christianity and is based on the idea of life being renewed, of a person being renewed. Uh, just as with the flood, all of created life on earth was renewed. This is implied in the words of Jesus when he tells the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, verses uh, 7 through 14, that he is the living water, that one who drinks it will become as a spring welling up to eternal life. So there is definitely a deeper, more figurative, and more spiritual theme to be found in this scriptural use of water and the and description of the flood. Perhaps you can say it's an esoteric use, as religious thinkers from all over the, the, the world have studied and meditated upon this story. But what is also uh, to be realized, what we need to see, is that there is a literal telling of the flood as well, of the cataclysm uh, event itself. Right. And for that, we should go to the book of Enoch, where in chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, God sends the angel uh, Uriel to warn Noah about the flood. And he puts blame on the angels for the evil things they taught mankind. In the Bible, it has um, God blaming mankind. But in Enoch, it's, um, it's, it, the blame is being put on the angels themselves. So in the Sumerian account, this deluge came because of an, of an ice sheet breaking off in Antarctica. The Anunnaki, mainly Enlil, uh, knew that this was going to happen with planet Nibiru when it came near the Earth on one of its passes. And remember, they were alien beings who were very advanced in their knowledge of geology and celestial mechanics. They knew full well that the, the close passage of these planets was going to result in, a pretty, in some pretty bad things happening. Um, they just didn't want to let us know about it. In fact, all of them swore an oath not to tell us. And Enlil was very adamant about this, but Inki, his brother, nay, not so much. So he broke that oath to warn the Adam, the Adamu, which uh, were the humans, of course, um, <clears throat> about the pending disaster and went to a human named Ziasudra to warn him about it, uh, telling him to construct a boat to save himself and his family. Uh, it's from this from this story that we get all of the other ones, which came about much later. So Zia Sudra was possibly the original character in the flood narrative, giving rise to the story of Khufu's both in uh, Egyptian myths about the flooding in the Nile River. 
and then to the Babylonian hook Neptistim, and then to the story that we all know, the story of Noah. Yeah, and also to the Greco-Roman story of Deucalion, uh, the Norse story of uh, Burgomer, uh, the Polynesian story of Ratapu, uh, the Aztec story of Tata and Nena, and the East African Masi story of Thumbainat, and so on and so on. They're all in some ways like carbon copies of a story with uh, only the names and places altered. Some of them do vary in details, uh, sometimes in significant ways, like the Norse story. It has the deluge of the world being not water, but the uh, blood of Mir after he was slain by the gods Odin, Vili, and Vai. And in the Celtic version, you have a, a Kazar being told by an idol on how to escape this, uh, this flood by sailing off with three other men and 50 women um, and to end up landing on the coast of Ireland long before the waters had risen. And so for the most part, the story is always about a deity who is really angry with humanity and he's going to wipe it out with a flood. But then he allows a few people and animals to survive. And those people who are chosen are chosen because they're special in some way. Well, either way you look at it, a flood occurred and a man and his family were chosen to build a boat of some kind in order to be safe. So, However, what you really need to pick up on here is what is stated in the Bible verses that I read just previously, um, that God was sorry for creating humans and that his heart was filled with pain. Okay, folks, this is what we mean by the characteristics of the biblical God, just not matching with our indoctrinated worldview of him today. This is indicating that he, God, made a mistake and that he has feelings and a heart that feels pain. So he, he has what you might say or call buyer's remorse. Now, how much clearer can you be on this God being organic flesh and blood? We've, we've said many times in our episodes that we see this throughout the Bible and other religious texts. Uh, the gods are indeed extraterrestrial in that they are not of this world. Yes, in that way, we are not like they are not like us. But they are creatures, physical creatures with material bodies, not spiritual ghosts. And in that way, they are like us. And like us as organic beings, that is, as flesh and blood, as you say, uh, they are not infallible or impeccable or omnipotent. Uh, they may be more advanced than us by far, but they are not God. We just think of them as such. And the occurrence of the deluge was... Uh, predicted by them, not initiated by them. And it was due to their tremendous scientific and technical knowledge that they could foresee what was about to happen. Uh, an increase in tidal friction compounded with the instability of the uh, Antarctic ice sheets. This would certainly give them, uh, this would make them complicit in the devastation of, of life uh, because they willfully denied giving any warning to humans and just let things fall as they may while they manage to escape. Um, still sounds pretty awful and kind of diabolical. Yeah, it sure does. Um, the story even has Indel saying in a few places that the Adamu, that being us, of course, weren't meant to last forever. So, yeah, um, we served our purpose for them, and that was it. Um, but some of them did care, and some of them were moral and righteous and, and didn't want to see the human race wiped out. Now, on the other hand, uh, even the more ethical uh, Anunnaki seem to believe that we needed our numbers to be greatly reduced and to be given a new start. 
Uh, Endel's brother Inky seemed to have a lot to do with going against the plan to annihilate us and help to ensure our survival through Zeosudra and the construction of his boat. Yeah, and, and this is a, a recount of the story of Noah and the construction of his ark. It's a lot more elaborate. Um, also, the book of Enoch gives more detail. And we find in the mm -hmm. verses here that when Noah was born, he looked completely different from most babies and that he was as white as snow, his face shone as brightly as the sun, and he could speak to the Lord with righteousness. There is a pseudo-epigraphical manuscript called the Book of Noah, and it's referenced in, in several chapters of Enoch, and also in something known as the Book of Jubilees. Other than that, it's non-extent. Um, but like many of the apocryphal writings from the 2nd and 1st centuries BC, fragments of it were discovered among uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, in Genesis, Noah is the son of Lamech, and he's the grandson of Enoch. His name is said to mean comfort. It says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he was a just and perfect man, and that he walked with God. That's about all that's given concerning him. However, in Enoch 105, uh, more is revealed about his origin. Lamech is fearful at the sight of Noah and goes to his father, Methuselah, to say that he has begotten a strange son who is not human, but instead resembles an angel. Methuselah, in turn, seeks the counsel of his father, Enoch, who tells him that the infant will survive a great destruction, he along with his three sons. He also assures Methuselah, an internal Lamech, um, that Noah is indeed a child that belongs to him. Uh, what we later unveil in this is that God wants to do away with the wickedness of the earth, which um, resulted from the intermarriage of the sons of God with the daughters of men. That's what brought about the Nephilim. Uh, this ties in with Genesis 6, where God is again saying he is grieved with the offspring of this intercourse and wants to wipe out the corruption, wipe it out completely. And this uh, ties in with, also with the Atrahasis, where we find Enlil is enraged with the Anunnaki, who have had sex with the human women, and again, who wants to wipe out everything. So we do have to believe that there was indeed a flood, at, at, at least some kind of flood, um, and that it was a pretty big one at that. Uh, but also one that it didn't likely cover the whole planet, but certainly did cover large areas of it uh, where people were living. Now, let's go back to Enoch chapter 10, uh, verses 2 to 3, where God orders Uriel to go down and meet with Noah in an attempt to uh, warn him about the coming deluge and instruct him on how to prepare for it. Now, we all know this story in Genesis with God slash Yahweh slash Jehovah himself, not Uriel, informing Noah about the flood and providing him with instructions on how to construct the ark. And the Bible version, mostly read today, have, um, have God translated as the Lord. But the original Hebrew word is Y-H-W-H, or as we all know, Yahweh. Uh, now, in the Akkadian text of the Sumerian story, Inki is the one warning Zeosudra about the flood without Enlil's knowledge about it. Uh, the Babylonian story is virtually the same as the Sumerian one where Ea, uh, Inki, warns Hupnep-Pishtim. So far, we have four different stories going on here about how a man was warned about a coming disaster, and those are just the ones from the Middle East, and not even all the Middle East. How do we know which one is correct? 
it sh should it be the original story, the Sumerian story? Uh, that would be the, the one that was first recorded and therefore less likely to be the myth. Uh, Enoch and Genesis are condensed and paraphrased versions based on the, the Babylonian account, which in turn was passed down from the Sumerian account. So this shows pretty well that Genesis is a shortened rendition of the Enuma Elish creation story. Um, it is also a shortened version of the Atrahasis flood story, where the ark comes to rest on Mount Nimush, also known as Pur, Omar Gudrun, which is in Kurdistan, which is in Iraq. So looking for the ark on Mount Ararat, as it says in the Bible, in Turkey, per the biblical account, has not proven fruitful, fruitful because the biblical account was based on transcriptions from later sources, not the original Akkadian cuneiform text themselves. Those weren't found for quite some time. Uh, maybe efforts to locate the ark should have been more focused on Kurdistan. Of course, we don't know where exact, uh, who exactly um, wrote Enoch or Genesis, for that matter. Or most of the Bible, for that matter. Yeah, so therefore, both seem to have a, a different take on the creation account and the flood account. And, and both seem to reflect on the Sumerian slash Babylonian epics. Yet the book of Enoch is, is far more thorough and comprehensive. It also seems to more closely follow those those epics, which means it probably uh, came from a much older source tradition than the book of Genesis. So all things considered, I think we can say that while this deluge didn't cover the whole world, uh, we can safely say that it covered what was known as the known world at, at that time. Yeah, especially when you consider that the, most of the settlements and villages built by people in ancient times were close to water sources. Uh, just look at Mesopotamia with the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that connected the Persian Gulf, which in turn connect to the, uh, connects to the Arabian Sea and the Indian Ocean. This area of the Middle East called the Fertile Crescent, Fertile Crescent um, were also sometimes called the Cradle of Civilization, was heavily populated with cities and farmlands. And if you lived there at that time, you could easily refer to it as the world um, from your perspective. Anything beyond that would have been virtually unknown to most of the people living there, so they wouldn't so much care about it. So if the Tigris and Euphrates Valley was slammed with water pouring in from the Persian Gulf because of a sudden and colossal rise in sea level, this would be like a tsunami that was hundreds or possibly thousands of feet high. And anyone living in this valley, and at that time, that was a lot, uh, possibly the considerable bulk of the human population, they would have been goners. Now, to them, this would look like a flood that covered the entire world, when in reality it was mostly just Mesopotamia that was being covered, not the entire world. Of course, it would be similar tsunami-type water rises on other rivers around the world, which would um, flood other valleys as well, like the Nile, the Indus, the Ganges, the Yangtze, uh, all those rivers in Asia and other parts of the world uh, and from these other parts we do have flood stories so a rapid and massive rise in sea level caused a uh, caused by a large ice sheet uh, breaking off from antarctica and going into the ocean like slamming into the ocean that would indeed devastate the places where most people were living which is by the water uh, even if it didn't literally cover the highest mountains um, just as the location of atlantis is highly debated 
so too is the exact location of the resting place of Noah's Ark. It has long been thought to be buried under the ice and snow on the top of Mount Ararat, which is near the Turkish and Armenian border. Uh, that mountain peak is over 16,000 feet in elevation. But the thing is, there are other places where clues have come up. Uh, most of these places are in the Middle East, in Turkey, Armenia, uh, Iraq, and Iran. Uh, the trouble with the biblical text is um, that it, it mentions the mountains, that's plural, mountains of Ararat. And this is leaving some speculation about it being a region, uh, Ararat being a, a region, not a specific mountain, but a region. Um, you know, in, in medieval times, the Ark was said uh, by an Armenian monk named Hytheon to be visible on the top of Mount Ararat. And the same thing was said by none other than Marco Polo. However, we have to keep in mind that these actual sightings are not at all verified. There are Orthodox monasteries near the base on the Armenian side that claim to hold actual pieces of Noah's Ark. And there have been many expeditions to this part of the world to search for its remains. According to a 2010 article in National Geographic, a team believed they were 99.9% .9 confident that they found its remains right there on Mount Ararat. Um, and there are many accounts, and, and these accounts are often contestable. Uh, another place where archaeologists think they may have found it is several miles away in Durapinar. Uh, Durapinar is also in Turkey. Uh, and the problem is that you know, the description in the ancient text of where it is is just simply too vague. And the reports of it being actually found are, are too unverifiable. Which is why we shouldn't take the story in Genesis as accurate at face value. Not only do you have the highest mountains completely submerged, which would be impossible, you also have only Noah and his family who were saved plus a, a male and female of each species that made it onto the ark, which would also be impossible. Um, you need more than that to continue you know, life. And, and just as inconceivable is, is the idea that all the world is going to be replenished with human and animal life in, in, in this particular way. Yeah, and don't forget plant life. And the luge uh, of this magnitude, a flood of this magnitude, would kill tremendous amounts of trees, grass, shrubs, and bushes, even a lot of aquatic vegetation wouldn't survive the changes in salinity, temperature, clarity, nutrient concentration, and water light penetration. Uh, fish wouldn't survive either for the same reasons. Too much of the ecosystem would have been altered, so we don't find any evidence of that from the fossil records. And this whole argument about the literal interpretation of the flood account has been around for quite a while. Um, since the 19th century, there have been several theories put forth to reconcile the elements of the, the creation and flood narratives with current discoveries in the natural science, sciences. Um, they've been coined under various names like flood geology, scientific creationism, young earth, intelligent design, theistic evolution, but they often run into problems in that they are less with this, uh, these problems are less with the semantics and more with the structuralism. We see this in how the concepts of cosmology were communicated and understood by the biblical writers. For instance, one of the epistemological models prevalent um, to the Hebrews was that there existed a firmament above the earth and an abyss below it, and that water surrounded everything. 
Um, any idea of a spherical earth didn't uh, seem to come around until the time of the Greek thinkers like Euclid, Ptolemy, uh, Aristophanes, you know, those guys. Uh, I've seen some nice diagrams that illustrate uh, this model with a flat terra, a flat ground, upheld by these uh, pillars, and pillars that have fountains uh, going down to the waters below in the abyss, which connect to the oceans. And then you have the sky over the ground and the oceans with the sun, the moon, the planets, and the stars along that dome. It's kind of moving along it, a celestial dome in which everything is encapsulated. Then above this is the firmament that has floodgates or windows of heaven, and it holds all the waters above, sometimes called the expanse. And over this is the heavenly seat. Now, likewise, below the ground, but above the abyss is Sheol or Hades, the abode of the dead. So the whole universe is sort of inside what would, I guess you would say, is one of those shaker, snow shaker globes with the water. We shake it and, and the snow moves around and it's, the globe itself is full of water. So when we read about the fountains and the floodgates opening and dumping water everywhere, we know that this is misconstrued and misunderstood. It's a misunderstood process of nature from the ancients at that time. You know, even the Vatican has, within the last 60 years, acknowledged that there is no firmament or abyss, uh, that any of the scriptural truths of Genesis are allegorical, and that they speak more in terms of theological constructs than they do of any literal record of natural events. And, and this is why you have this mention of the firmament and floodgates and fountains from the abyss. Correct. And we've pointed out in previous uh, episodes how myth and, and fact can become intertwined in the traditions given to us from, from the past. What's interesting to know is the Bible mentions that God had not allowed it to rain on the earth up until the start of the flood. It said that a mist would come up from the ground and would water it. Well, maybe that's the water. Maybe it's the fountains uh, with water from the abyss, just like, like a, a global sprinkler system. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, now, I touched upon this last week when I referred to the, the Zulu shaman, Kredo Mutwa, who talked about a mist or vapor that once covered the earth. So I believe that uh, before the flood came, this vapor was thick enough to block out much of the sun's rays. Uh, again, maybe not the entire planet, but certain regions, uh, obviously in the ones where these Bible stories unfold. So after the tilting of the earth and the shifting of the poles, new weather patterns began, and that included rain. Now, the vapor slash mist uh, dissipated, and the sun's rays were now able to fully penetrate the atmosphere, causing a new phenomena. And you guessed it, the rainbow. So this wasn't some great miracle or promise by God at all. Uh, this is what happens when sunlight is refracted through the raindrops and it causes the optical spectrum to be seen in what we know as the rainbow. So this is an illusion in the atmosphere, not seen in the times before the flood. Uh, we also find in the Anuba Elish that there is a permanent mention in how it talks about the hammered bracelet. Now, to be clear, the hammered bracelet is part of the creation story. Uh, it has nothing to do with, with the flood, but it does refer to a separation of the waters from the earth. And this is actually what we could use for um, the, the argument where people say that, well, the entire earth was covered uh, with water 
because of places like the Grand Canyon in Arizona. Well, at one time when it was very, very young, long before the the flood occurred, that you know millions it was a watery years, millions. Yeah, it was a watery years. planet then. Yeah, That's right. when the uh, Grand Canyon may have possibly have been formed. So I explained what it means. Um, so there is no confusion between this and the and the biblical deluge. So the Amherst bracelet is the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, but there is a lot more detail given about it than what's in the Bible. So according to the Enuma Elish, the asteroid belt came about from the collision uh, of of two celestial bodies, which is Marduk and Tiamat. And Marduk, aka Nibiru, was brought into our solar system for the very first passage, um, and 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 one of its moons collided with Tiamat, causing her to become lifeless. Now this is where the Genesis story begins with the Earth being formless and void. Now, in the Enuma Elish, it says the Lord paused to see her lifeless body uh, to kill this monster. He then artfully planned to split her into two parts like a muscle. Now, this happened on the next return of Marduk when it crashed through Tiamat and split her wide open. However, another moon of Marduk uh, hit one of the split halves, making Ki and Kingu and pushed them into another orbit which is Earth and our moon. But the other split half was was slammed into by Marduk himself, completely shattering it. So it says, he bent Tiamat's tail to form the great band as a bracelet. So this is what Genesis means when it has God and making the sky uh, separating the, the expanse, the, the waters above from the waters below. So th- this became the hammered bracelet which now separates our, our inner planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Moon, and Mars, from the other ones, which is Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. Now, many scholars now agree that the Hebrew word Tihom, it's watery deep, derived from Tihom Araba, which is the great Tiamat, and that this Sumerian slash Babylonian stories um, are what the Genesis authors were attempting to expound upon with such phrases as the wind of the Lord hovered over the waters of the deep, Tihom. So earth and Rekia, or Rekia, the hammered bracelet, were then created, which was later translated as the firmament, and then also as the heavens. So Akkadian texts also refer to the celestial zone as the hammered bracelet. Therefore, the asteroid belt and the earth are the heavens and the earth portrayed in the Bible. If the Great Flood occurred, say, around 13,000 B.C., then it was most likely after this that people are, are taught such things as agriculture and husbandry. And then not long after that, to start uh, the, the civilization began all over. Now, Nibiru makes a couple more passes, such as around 11,000 B.C., then again around 7,500 B.C., with the Anunnaki assisting mankind even in the domestication of animals and the construction of buildings. Then with their next return, which was about uh, 3800 BC, the Sumerian civilization is in full bloom by this point. Man was now taught mathematics, astronomy, chemistry, and writing, among other things. After this, the aliens fly around the world to teach people everywhere, therefore becoming the gods of our religions as told by the many different cultures. Um, it's also said that the Anunnaki, later 
divided the earth into regions with Enki and his descendants given rule over Africa, uh, Enlil and his descendants uh, given rule over Eurasia. Uh, this sounds very close to the Bible story of the earth being divided by uh, or divided up by Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, I'm happy you mentioned earlier that Noah was described as looking different um, the, the, in the way he did, because research has been conducted into how there are different eye colors in people. And according to an article in Luna DNA, uh, up to about uh, 10,000 years ago, humans all had brown eyes. It's believed that a mutation occurred sometime about 6,000 years ago when the OCA2 gene, which is the main gene responsible for eye color, appeared, which can be traced to originating in the northwest area of the Black Sea. This, of course, is just due north of Mesopotamia. So could it be possible that this mutation was a result of the mating, the mating between angels slash extraterrestrials and humans? Uh, was Noah slash Zeosudra a demigod? Uh, these stories take place around the same time period. And we have to ask, what's going on here? There is definitely so much more to this than mainstream scholarship is divulging. Yeah, there's plenty of evidence has been studied to show that the Earth and its climate has transformed quite a bit through its 4.5 billion year history. You know, long periods of warming followed by long periods of cooling, uh, with there being five known ice ages, and then subsequent periods of warming with the melting of those ice ages, and then again more periods of warming. And it, goes in macro cycles that scientists attribute uh, to plate tectonics, um, solar activity, and orbital factors like eccentricity, precession, uh, and obliquity. Um, these are all just the movements of the Earth and its orbit around the sun and the movement of its axis in respect to the sun. But it seems like this particular flood has endured in our cultural memories more so than any other natural cataclysm. Uh, there was something that definitely put us on the brink of extinction, even if you believe that more than eight people survived and you don't take the Genesis account literally, I would say it was just as de devastating to the Earth as was the asteroid collision 65 million years ago uh, that most paleontologists think killed off the dinosaur species. The only thing with that is that humans weren't around to be uh, affected by it. Um, but for the Great Flood, humans were indeed around. And the Anunnaki aliens from Nibiru knew it was coming and truly believed and had every reason to think that it would kill off all of, all of us and all of them. Um, but it didn't uh, because someone named Noah, Ziasudra, Utnapeshtim, or whoever survived it. And we see mankind become elevated in esteem after this. The Atru Asis has An and Enlil almost glorifying the Adamu. Uh, for surviving this, finding them most worthy of continuing on to exist on the planet Earth and promising to help them do so. Now, this sounds remarkably similar to the tone that God takes in Genesis 8.21, where he says in his heart that he will never again curse the Earth for man's sake. So the post-alluvial Earth was indeed different than before, um, but it was not the first time that it had changed, and the Anunnaki, Anunnaki aliens knew that. Uh, they knew this was coming. They had a technology and an understanding that compared to uh, what we possess at the time, uh, much more advanced than we even have right, at this day and age. And it that would have made them godlike. 
So not only were humanity's numbers greatly decimated in this flood, but it also seems that Atlantis, a possible alien colony on our planet, as we talked about in um, a previous episode, it was eradicated from existence because of it. Of course, the aliens also had uh, the advantage of being able to evacuate the Earth to avoid themselves from being killed. Yeah, and they had, definitely had the capability to do that, and we did not. And so as a story to be told to future generations, this was the biggest thing that ever happened to the human race. And our religions give proof to that by preserving this story so well. And uh, that is all the time we have for today. Uh, next Sunday is Father's Day. So Lori and I will not be doing a show uh, so that we can spend time with our families. Uh, hopefully our kids will do something nice for us. Uh, <laughs> hopefully all the kids out there will do something nice and special for their dads. Yeah, maybe our kids can uh, do the podcast for us while we sit back and relax and have a beer <laughs> or two. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know how relaxed we'd be if uh, the kids were taking over the show for us. <laughs> yeah, I can just see us saying, yeah, you kids handle that podcast today and uh, make sure it's a good one now. I'm going to be out by the pool drinking a Mai Tai. So yeah, let, let me know if you need anything, okay? <laughs> hey, you never know. They, they just might surprise us. Oh, I, I think we'd be surprised, all right. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll be with you again on June 27th uh, with our next episode about the all-important religious figures, Yahweh and Lucifer, and about how their characters permeate not only Judeo-Christianity as personifications of good and evil, but all forms of faith in some way or another. And of course, we will talk about how they could have been portrayed to us through alien interaction with humanity from, you guessed it, way back in the far off and obscure distant past. Um, our old ancestors meet them a long, long, long time ago as alien beings. Yeah, a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff to thoroughly cover and gain some insight uh, into these these subjects. Uh, perhaps esoteric, but mm. insightful subjects nonetheless. Uh, that will be on the 27th. Uh, there will be no show on the 20th. So we wish a happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. And we hope you get to enjoy some time with your families. And as always, uh, stay safe. Definitely stay peaceful. And of course, stay curious. Take care, folks. Yeah, we look forward to being back, everyone. So have a great week and a happy Father's Day to all you, all you dads out there. Take care.